Hi, everybody, and welcome to the NDSC podcast, a place where management faculty and PhD students share about their journeys and stories in academia. Before we start our next episode, I want to thank Babson College, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and the Kaufman Foundation, right? I think these three organizations were fundamental in supporting, particularly doctoral students, right? I, I was able to be there uh, for this conference, participate in all the activities, but also record this podcast, these interviews, thanks to the support, uh, the teams in each one of these organizations that did a lot of work, right? And sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes uh, maybe we just see the logo, right? But uh, there's, I think, a lot of work and intentionality behind it. So big thanks again, Babson College, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and the Kaufman Foundation for your support. And now I'm with a new guest, Ashley Roca Priori. I'm not saying it right. You got it right. Yeah? Good job. Okay. But now this episode is kind of like that version. I usually have faculty, but you know that once in a while I, I, I host a student, although, well, maybe Ashley's I'm not a student anymore. Faculty now, so it's a faculty. Yeah? Well, so yeah. But maybe if I, if I did this podcast, a month ago or two months it ago. It would have been a student. It would have been a student. But yeah, so Ashley just achieved a huge milestone finishing her uh, program. And now she's moving from Tennessee to Auburn. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks and for having me. Thanks for being, and then, I mean, I, I got to say, right, Ashley kind of like is a role model for me in the podcast scene because she has a, a, a more fun, I'm going to say, podcast or more interesting. Uh, so you can check it out, that one too. And I'll let her then, right now or later, tell you a little bit more about that. But yeah, welcome, Ashley. Thank you. So I always try to start uh, with an icebreaker, and it's tell me something about you that has nothing to do with academia, with research, with a university, right? Passion, hobby, anything that you want to share that has nothing to do with our kind of like bubble of academics. Hmm. I'll give two fun facts. Yes. First fun fact is I wasn't always interested in business when I was from the age of seven until probably sophomore or junior year in undergrad. I wanted to be a pediatric cardiologist, so I actually wound up in undergrad not being allowed to take any electives because I had so many biomed credits that when I transferred to entrepreneurship, I had no electives. My brother and sister took golf and bowling, and then I had chemistry, anatomy. Um, so I've always been interested in science, but in a different way. Um, so le- more fun fact, um, I love animals. Like my favorite animal is a goat. Um, okay. But we actually have three dogs now and a pet lizard. Okay. Um, no goats. No ghost yet. Okay. Not yeah. yet. Okay. One day. One day. <laughs> um, but when we got the lizard, we didn't realize uh, how, well, I, my husband knew. I had no idea. The lizard gets up to three feet long and lives up to 60 years. Yeah. So I really hope I live long enough to see the end of his life. So now I have a pet that will, may outlive me. Hey, what's the name of the lizard? His name is Thorfinn after the show Ghosts, okay. which is... Not exactly right, because Thorfinn in the show is a Viking, and this lizard is <laughs> like a dinosaur. So I kind of went, didn't really match it well enough. A dragon type, whatever. <laughs> Same Let's thing. See. Um, that's awesome. Uh, why goats? Why goat? I don't know if I have an answer. They're they're cool. I also think like the fact that they faint when they get scared is 
okay, hilarious, okay. so maybe that's why. But they're just fun. They have a lot of energy. Maybe they're too much like me. They they have too much energy. They're obnoxious. I feel like that's probably just what it is. <laughs> I gotta say, when you said that you were very interested in being a pediatrician, um, so I have kids, right? And and I always and they're little kids, so they make fun of me because I tell I tell them that I'm gonna be a doctor. And my brother is a doctor, right? So they're like, no, dad, you're not a doctor. I'm like, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. Like, no, you don't go to the hospital. You don't like, put like put shots uh, on us. And like, but there's also other types of doctors. So you're going to be that type of doctor. I ended up being this type of doctor. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Still a doctor, though. I'll take it. Still a doctor, yeah. And let's not take out merit of our work, for sure. <laughs> um, so now I'm, I want to start with maybe telling a little bit. And, and you already kind of like briefly talked about this, but... Uh, how did you end up getting a PhD? Why a PhD? And then why becoming a, an academic, a professor? Yeah, um, so I had an a interesting path to PhD. Um, I worked industry for 10, 15 years before I decided to come back and get one. Um, I actually, like I said, was not entrepreneurship in school until halfway through and just thought, biomed classes were boring. They just were black and white. There was no gray. Um, and so I decided to do a career center thing. And they said, you could either be a nurse or an entrepreneur. And I was like, okay, those are two very different things. Uh, nursing, I'd still take the same classes. So I'll try and take an entrepreneurship class. So I took one entrepreneurship class and the professor on the first day said, you're going to leave today knowing if this is for you or not. And I changed my major that day. And I just found out that that room that that class was in is the classroom I'm going to be teaching my first entrepreneurship class at Auburn. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I changed it then. I just, something with the class just in my mind, it was like a switch went off that I was like, okay, I, this is something I really think is fascinating. Um, so I worked with a bunch of startups, both in undergrad and all the way kind of through my career. And all of my jobs, even industry-wise, were... Um, some entrepreneurial in some capacity. So originally when I joined this global telecom company, they brought me in for this group that was basically an intra-entrepreneurship, corporate entrepreneurship group. And that kind of spanned, started my career in there. I wound up managing all of the costs for North America for this company. Um, so $52 million of cost we cut my last year there, but it wound up a lot of my friends' jobs were getting cut and I was told I'm not allowed to tell them. So it just, it became a place where I felt like I was doing more harm than good. Mm -hmm. um, so my husband at the time was getting his PhD and anyone that listens that has ever met my husband will understand this. He is um, one of the funniest people you'll ever meet, but he has never been a risk taker by any mm -hmm. stretch. He got an offer to do his PhD at UNT in physics. Um, and I told Jose earlier, uh, his background was in nutrition. Uh, so he did this PhD and moved his whole life out there. Like just called me and said, I'm going out tomorrow, packed up his car and left. And that is not like him. And he spent seven years in North Texas just trying to do this. And over those seven years, watching the growth for him personally over seven years was mind-blowing to me of how one person could grow so much so i i said he said to me at one point what do you want to do with your life and one of the options was teaching and he said you'd be great at teaching but you'll be more interested in research and so he said you should look at a phd and i thought if i could have even a minuscule amount of the growths that he had in his seven years then i want it let's let's see what winds up happening and so i just went for it left my job took a very big pay cut he hadn't even defended his dissertation did not have a job and we moved out here and it just 
worked out well. I, I think we take big risks and sometimes they pay off, sometimes they don't, and this time it did. That's awesome. I think that that uh, I want to kind of like highlight that point of like the personal growth that kind of like this journey is about. I, I really want to echo that because I, I completely agree with that. And maybe kind of like going into a little bit of that is, so you just finished yeah, your PhD, just wrap that up. What was the, the best thing, the most fulfilling thing about getting a PhD? You know, I had someone ask me um, back in December when I, they had asked me why I got a PhD and I had talked about my husband and their response was, do you feel like you've had that growth? And nobody's asked me that. And I, I don't know if I'd ever reflected on it. And I said, yes, but not in the way I expected. Watching him, I saw a completely different type of growth. For me, I feel like these last five years, because you spend so much time alone in a mm -hmm. lot of parts of this career, it caused a lot of introspection of who I was. And I feel like it was the first time in my life, and it wasn't the whole five years this way, mm -hmm. but I just started to accept who I was as a person because mm -hmm. I have a very big personality and it's not for everyone and that's okay. And for my first couple years, I would struggle in my seminars and in my methods classes because I'd ask questions that kind of maybe seemed out of left field. And mm -hmm. it taught me a lot about how to be okay with who I am. So I feel yeah. like for me, the most rewarding thing is just acceptance and understanding. Um, but I also feel like it also, working with other students was also very humbling. Mm. Um, as like a senior student working with junior students or even a year, a couple years ahead of me, it was just humbling to see what an impact you could have on other people, but also what an impact they could have on you mm. and how much you could learn from each other. And I feel like this career and a lot of careers can often get really competitive. And I, I felt like if people just took on the mindset of I could learn from you and you could learn from me, it would be way less competitive and you'd be so eager to in yeah. interact with people and learn from them. So I feel like for me, the most, in, the most rewarding thing was just learning about myself, but also getting the opportunity to learn about other people. That's awesome. I love that. They kind of like that part of helping each other. Okay. But then there's the other side, right? And so that's the other side of the coin. What, what would you say would be the most challenging thing about getting a PhD or this journey? Oh. Um, so when I got my offer to come to UT, Mm -hmm. There was a student here uh, who, basically our program director sends out an email to everyone saying, hey, so-and-so, join the program, welcome them. Mm -hmm. So I had the same thing. Well, one of the students forwarded the email thread for me to find out that they had made offers to seven other people who said no, and that was the only reason I had gotten an offer. Mm -hmm. So joining a PhD program, feeling like you weren't wanted to be there in the first place, and you, the faculty have made it abundantly clear that that was not the case. I had not taken the GMAT at the time, so they were like, we wanted someone with the GMAT. Yeah. Um, but when I, I didn't know that when I joined, so I joined feeling like unwanted and like an imposter, and I battled horrible imposter syndrome for at least two years. It's better, but it's still there. It will always be there. But I think the hardest part is just feeling like you're worthy of being able to do this and not like you're a moron. Because you're meeting and talking to these people that are so brilliant and so passionate about what they're doing. And it can be really intimidating, especially when you come from industry and you don't understand the language of what they're talking about. Yeah, of course. So I think the hardest part is just getting out of your own head and convincing yourself that you're capable. 
when it's such a big difference from anything you've done in your life. Most people are never have done this. No matter if you come from industry or we have a student in our program right now, he came straight from undergrad. We literally celebrated his 21st birthday with him. <laughs> so for him, I feel like he also has challenges, right? You teaching in a classroom with students that are just a few years younger than you. It's, it's challenging in this career and you're going to always have something you haven't done before. And I think that that's the hardest part is just mentally wrapping your mind around the fact that it's okay that you don't know everything. Yeah, I think there, I mean, it's so different to anything else that you said. And then if you're talking with people that, like friends of mine, that they don't have no idea of a PhD, it's like how different it can be. They don't understand, right? And then for people that are interested in, you know, oh yeah, it's different, but until you're in, you see mm -hmm. how different it is. So I, even, I completely agree. Even my husband's PhD, it's night and day different with yeah. physics versus the social sciences. And so even just their publishing cycles and their journals, like his papers are six to eight pages. So when yeah. I say mine's 50, he says, what the hell can you talk about in 50 pages? Yeah, like, yeah, why do you yeah, need yeah. so much space? So it's just so different, even in different fields. Wow. Yeah, 100%. Um, another another kind of like topic that I want to touch on is I think, and you talked about like helping others and how others can like also help you. And during this journey, it, has there been kind of like, what's the best advice you received maybe from an advisor, a friend that has really helped you on these years in your PhD? It's a tough question because I have gotten really great advice. Um, there are two pieces. One was not from an academic, but the spouse of one of the academics I've met. And I was relaying just like some experiences I had and I said, but you know, it's not a big deal. Like I probably shouldn't be feeling this way. And they looked at me and they said, you're feeling it for a certain way and your feelings are valid and you can feel whatever way you want to feel. And it was the first time that I was like, yes, like you're right, I can. It doesn't mean I have to react on that. But just the, the comment about that was from a non-academic who's married to an academic, a different perspective. Yeah. And I thought that that was really insightful even though it was such a small comment and I doubt she even remembers making the comment mm -hmm. I think the other best advice I've gotten is stay in your lane mm -hmm. um, and it's advice I give to all new doctoral students because I think part of my imposter syndrome that was so hard my first year is I kept comparing myself to everyone else mm -hmm. and if you for example my cohort mate ace you've met ace he's amazing amazing writer he finished comps texted me and I was like I feel like I'm gonna die he's like I feel invigorated because he just got to write for two days straight and he he's such a good writer he can spin these stories that are just beautiful I'm not writing is not a strength literally half of my dissertation comments of things I had to change were grammatical because I'm just that bad at writing <laughs> and I spent my first two years looking at him and going I need to be better at writing I need I'm, I'm so behind at this level meanwhile if I had just realized I'm good at analysis. Mm -hmm. If I spent all my time trying to be the best writer, I'm taking away time I could be honing in on the skills I actually have. Yeah. And I could be on co-author teams with people like Ace, where they're great writers, I can do the methods and we can work together. And this career, as alone as you are through a lot of it, there are co-author teams for a reason. There are so few single author publications for a reason. So I think staying in your lane and just focusing on what you're good at and supplementing it, just like we tell our entrepreneurship students, you're gonna start a business and you're not gonna be able to know how to do everything. You need to hire for this, the weaknesses you have. Know your strengths, stay in your lane, focus on that and find co-authors that you work well with and you wanna work with that can supplement the pieces that you're not as strong in. Yeah, I love that, right? Because I 100% agree. And 
and I think I, I love sports but then even like in sports right you cannot have the person that is good at defense offense like whatever like that's why you play in a team and sometimes we see our academic uh, careers are very individualistic but that's why we have collaboration and then I mean I'm not saying there's those um, really amazing scholars that can do all I mean there's right. there's a few of them and they're amazing but the average guys I mean we and, and I think also independent of that working in teams and collaborating team is pretty fun I, 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 that's my personal and I don't think like even Tim Pollack for example just published this book on writing and you ask him like why did you why is writing so interesting to you and he said he asked his dissertation chair during his dissertation studies of what is his biggest weakness and they said writing and so he spends so many years just toning that in and getting better on it. So I think you can take that path of even if it's not your strength, learn it if that's yeah. something you want to do. Um, and now he gets brought on to things to help with the writing. Like yeah, yeah. Him and Ace go hand in hand in that regard. So I think you you don't have to just focus on what you're, you're already good at. You can learn these new things, but don't compare yourself of where you're at to other people who yeah. just have different strengths than you. Absolutely. Um, similar to that, um, kind of like on advice, is there a resource, right, that you found super helpful uh, during your PhD and maybe you want to share? Research, like topic area? No, resource, sorry. Resource. Yeah, something that really helped you in your journey. The entrepreneurship division at AOM. Mm. I think that people, um, I don't know if they don't know the resources are there, but there are so many opportunities to network not just at AOM at all these conferences, right? Like find a way to go. Somebody said at a job panel years ago that their re only reason they got a job was because of networking. And they spent so much money. He's, he basically was like, you have no idea how much credit card debt I have just from conference fees. Um, but it gave him the opportunity to meet people. And even if you can't afford to do that, right? Money isn't the same for everyone. If you can even do, AOM has so many virtual sessions throughout the year, but nobody knows about them. Yeah. So if you go and you go on the AOM, AOM websites for whatever divisions you're interested in, and you just find what's happening, you have the opportunity to actually meet people that you wouldn't otherwise meet. Ace, my first year, started a um, writing group that we wound up having Ace me, two people from UCF and a person from Indiana that we became really good friends, but their networks then became our networks, all because we open the door to have an opportunity there. So I think resource-wise, find it. Somebody told me early on, find your tribe, and I went up to them, and I was like, I still haven't found this tribe you keep telling me I'm going to have. Where are they? Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like if you can find your division within the academy that you really are interested in and take those opportunities that they're giving you, you have the option to meet people you wouldn't have otherwise met who, re whether it be research or socially, have the opportunity to change your perspectives about things. And it could be really valuable. So I think for me, that's probably been the biggest resource I've had. But I also don't know if my resources that I would say are super research focused. I, I think people are more interesting than just what we do. And yeah. So for me, the biggest resource is meeting the other people. Yeah, and I think that's hard, right? Because I think a lot of the the focus of our work, and even when you're a PhD student, it's kind of like everything has to be research oriented at almost any activity, any decision you make has to kind of like have a direct effect in your research. And sometimes a lot of what you're saying has a maybe indirect effect in your research because you share ideas, then those persons can become friendly reviewers. 
but it's an indirect effect, right? Yeah. And, and and usually we think about, well, if I go to conference, it's only because I'm going to present a paper, or it's a, it has to be like it has to be a, had a direct effect on my research, and if not, it's not worth it. But then sometimes it's hard, and maybe as a PhD student, to un see that you're networking and maybe not even talking about research, but meeting someone in the long run has a, a really strong indirect effect. And but that's hard to to know, right? But, yeah, yeah, Absolutely. I love that. So what I do at the end. Um, for my last question, it's kind of like ask a more tailored uh, question for for my guest. And I think what I would love to hear from you is your a little bit of your experience in the job market, right? As we mentioned in the early introduction, you are just kind of like finishing here in Tennessee, going to Auburn. And I think, I mean, I'm going into the job market, right? And it's kind of like this emotion, anxiety, I'm happy, I'm nervous, right? So what I, what I would like, like to kind of like do the exercise with you is kind of like, Maybe try to you share what was that like? Oh, I'm going to the job market and that level. What happened during the job market and maybe how your expectations shift? Like how this whole experience has maybe shaped your view of this last part of academic journey as a PhD student and kind of like early uh, start of uh, uh, assistant professor job. Or something yeah. Like that. So I actually I'm going to be on a job market panel at AOM, awesome. and when they asked me, I remember saying to my chair. I don't know why they want me on the job market panel. I had one fly out. Like, what am I going to possibly say? And she says, you know very well your job market for you started the day you walked in the door. Because, so I was saying stay in your lane, find your strengths. There is this thing called Clifton Strengths Finder. Have you ever yeah. heard of it? So my number two strength is strategic. Mm -hmm. And everything in my life has always been that way. And so when I walked in the door, I was seeing other doc students prep their job market presentations. So from day one, I started thinking, what would mine look like? Well, how do I tailor my pipeline to be what, what I could put in a Venn diagram? And so every project that I was starting and I was taking on, I'd ask myself, how does this fit? And it was with everything. So example, um, I knew who I wanted on my committee before I sat for comps. And the people I wanted on my committee were bigger names and I was very concerned that they were not, who am I? They have nothing to do with me. So I decided for AOM that I would do a symposium on their topics and invite them. So my name was already in front of them beforehand because I knew I was gonna ask them. And it basically was a way for them to know who I was separate from other doc students that they could see this is what Ashley's researching this is who Ashley is as a person. Do I want to be part of this or not? And it, it worked. Everyone we asked said yes, which I was incredibly grateful for. Actually, within a 24-hour period, we found out the AMJ got an R&R, &R, and all my committee members said yes within 24 hours. And I remember someone asking me, like, how excited are you about the AMJ? And I said, honestly, I'm more excited about the committee members because the AMJ means they like my work. The committee members mean they value me and they support me. So. I love that. I, I was, I, it was so exciting. Um, so I think be strategic really early on really helped me. My job market was, as I said, very short. Um, I decided to soft test early because with my husband's job, we didn't know what that, his my husband for those on the podcast, um, I said he has his PhD in physics. He works at the National Lab here in Tennessee. And so we were trying to see how this would work with two dual careers, but not both in academia who with PhDs, you have limited options of what you could really do or what you want to do. Um, and so where could I go that he could keep his job? Um, and so I soft tested in year four and there were some great options, but I just kept feeling like 
if I could have one more year, I'd be a really a much stronger candidate. And UT prefers us to do a five-year program. And it was a much better decision because I went on the market with a better pipeline and with better pubs. But when I, the probably six months before the job market like officially starts, I was already being told that I was on the job market and everything I went to, I had to be professional Ashley, which for anyone that has ever met me knows that I'm the same person with everyone. There is no professional Ashley. It's just Ashley. Uh So when I started applying for jobs, I was concerned because there weren't many that were close to Knoxville. And what did that mean for my husband and his job? We decided day one of the PhD program, we were not going to live apart. So I knew, okay, I got to be strategic, but I got to be strategic within a certain area for him to be able to keep this. Mm -hmm. This is his dream job. Mm -hmm. And so I look at all these schools. I'm trying to prep this whole thing out. They're not on the market. I'm kind of freaking out at this point. Um, I applied to five schools. Um, Five schools? Yes, five schools. I got initial interviews from one of them I never heard of, and one of my really good friends got an offer there. And so he always jokes that, He got the one school that never wanted me. (laughs) Um, But I had interviews with four of them. And I was obviously very excited about Auburn because it's where I went for undergrad. Um, Somebody told me that you may change your opinion on things when you interview with these schools. And with Auburn, it made me more excited, but with other schools, it made me less excited. Mm. So it absolutely happens when you go on market, who you think may be your top choices might by the end be your I will never ever go there, but you don't know until you talk yeah, to the people. So I had some very weird and awkward first round interviews at AOM. Um, I left AOM wondering what the hell was happening. Like, where am I going to go? Um, Auburn was the first one to offer me a Zoom interview, and then the other schools offered it after. The issue was, is Auburn was moving quick. So I had the Zoom interview, and then they sent out flyouts within a week. Um, I went to my flyout, and people had told me before the flyout, you need to be professional, Ashley. And I woke up the day of my interview day, and I said, I need to be myself today because otherwise, I don't know if they want me for me or do they want me for who they think I am. Yes, yes. And so I made the decision that day that I'm just going to be me. And I left that day feeling so good about how the interactions with everyone went that I felt really comfortable that if they chose me as the candidate that they were never going to think, well, I wish we had gotten the Ashley who interviewed. They knew very well what they were getting into yeah, yeah, yeah. when they signed me. So I had waited for the interview or for the offer and had to decide at that point, do I cancel all my other interviews because I don't have an offer yet. Um, and big schools like UT and Auburn, and I didn't know this, so maybe others don't, they're not actually legally allowed to make a verbal offer. So when they call you, it's actually not a formal verbal offer. Um, And so I was ready. I was canceling all my other interviews, thinking it was that, and find out they can't actually do that. So now I'm panicking. Um, And it worked out fine, but be cautious when you get your verbal that it actually is a formal. Um, But they moved so quick, and I was just so sure that that was where I was supposed to be because I left the interview feeling so comfortable with the culture of the program relative nice. to my personality. But there are other people, you might have gone to the same thing and it might not have fit your culture. Yeah, and that's yeah, why course. they always say keep an open mind on job market because of that. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks, Ashley. I don't have more questions, but I want to give a shout out to your podcast. So like listeners here, I think they're going to benefit 
the same or even more from your podcast. So that's the entrepreneurship division, AOM entrepreneurship division podcast. But I don't know if you can give a little bit more information. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's called the This Month in Entrepreneurship podcast or TMI Entrepreneurship because as scholars we can never know enough, but it's also we probably tell too much about ourselves. Um, it's released. It's supposed to be every month. We took a three-month hiatus while I finished dissertation, uh, but it's a four. The Students Podcast by Joshua White, who's at University of Dayton, and I. Um, starting next year, we will actually have guest students as guests on the show to interview faculty, too. So we'll be putting out calls for students who want to be part of that. So if anyone wants to be part of that. That's awesome. Um, and it's just fun to talk to faculty about their lives and find out who they are as people and less so just about their research. Awesome. Well, there you go. Uh, thanks again, Ashley. Thanks for your time. And I love to record this episode with you. Thank you.